Love the nouns. Love the pronouns. Impersonal and personal. Love the words. From ELFM. So, good afternoon and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM from Chapel FM Arts Centre in Studio One, where I'm sitting with the Leeds writer, Rach Horner. Hello, Rach. Hello, UK. It's your first time here. It is. So, what do you make of it? Um, it's lovely. I love the intro and I like the little red room <laughs> that I'm sitting in as well. Good. <laughs> Good, my intro or the intro that you got at the door when you arrived? Both of them. Oh, They're both. both very good. <laughs> you know what to I'm say. I'm very welcomed. <laughs> good, good, good. And uh, yeah, so are you from Leeds originally? I am, yes. Yeah. So I'm from Meanwood originally and then uh, I went to York University for a little bit and then I came back to Leeds and moved up to Moortown. So I haven't really been very far <laughs> from Leeds. That's fine. So, and you're here today, which is not very far from, from where you live currently. No. Ten minutes on the bus. It's lovely. You'll have to come again. I will do, <laughs> if you'll have me. <laughs> but we're going to hear a little later on a radio play, a, uh, a play for radio, mm-hmm. radio drama that you've written uh, f- with Rocketbox Theatre mm-hmm. Company. And we're going to hear who Rocketbox are and, we're, and also looking forward to hearing the play. But first of all, tell us a little about you as, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, as most writers did, they start. Well, I started writing when I was very, very young. I started writing prose mostly. Um, and then I got really into musical theatre when I was about 13. And I was like, I'm going to be an all singing, all dancing sensation. Um, and then I realised that I'm way too nervous to be an actor. Um, so I did a stint at college of trying to be an actor. And I got on stage during Twelfth Night and I completely fluffed all of my lines. Um, and just the shame from that made me realise, OK, this isn't cut out for me, but I still want to do something theatre based. So um, I managed to combine uh, my early love of writing and my love of theatre. And I was like, ah, script writing. It's the way forward. Um, so, yeah. And then I went on to uni to study theatre, film and television. Um, and then I went to Manchester Met's creative writing school and got a distinction in playwriting. Um, so it's been a good few years of just learning and absorbing everything. Um, and yeah, I got approached by Rocketbox um, earlier last year, I think, because um, they were running a competition um, of, for people to submit ideas based along the theme of survival at all cost. Um, and they were wondering if I wanted to submit anything. And I said yes. And we had a big chat. Um, and then we started working on gentle things together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you're not the first shamed actor to have turned to writing, I'm saying. Oh, are so, you? Yeah, 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 there you go. There are a number of us around, I think. You have far more autonomy as a writer, I think. You can't, yeah. you can't, you can't act in this corner of a cafe, but you can write. You can write, yeah. You probably could act in the corner of a cafe, you but could. everyone would be really annoyed. And you might get thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, what, what, what do, you, do you have a kind of territory that you write about or in, in terms mm. of themes? Um. I tend to, not on purpose, stick to writing one-woman shows. Um, So when I was at university, I was writing very much like what I know. Um, And I had quite a religious upbringing, so I wrote a one-woman show about leaving a faith. Um, And then um, 
when we started working with uh, I, I worked with Rocketbox during um, COVID so because everything closed um, they started dabbling in radio plays and trying to go down that route so I wrote a 10 minute play with them called Headspace um, which again was a one woman show um, with ensemble acting um, about an elderly woman who was going through who was struggling with dementia and it was from her perspective um and now and then i wrote a play called daffodils which was um had a rehearsed reading at the stephen joseph theater in scarborough which was all about um losing a mother and losing the matriarch of a family so i've, I've noticed that they've all gone down the route of women-centric stories and women actors and especially like um northern actors as well um yeah not on purpose it's just happened <laughs> but well, i'm not mad at it and i guess with what we're going to hear, Gentle Things, mm -hmm. is also a one-woman play, mm -hmm. um, a one-woman monologue. Well, and I'll ask you about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. First of all, yeah, tell us anything you can tell us about Rocketbox, or I didn't know anything yes. about. So Rocketbox are a Cornish-based theatre company um, who are just lovely. They're just so good at what they do. Um, and um, they... they Started in York, yeah. You yeah, yeah. Me that. So, in fact, you, um, you can tell me. Yes. <laughs> no, you tell me. What do you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I met them first when I went to York University and we were all on the same course together. Um, and then in the final year of university, we were all encouraged to think about what we were taking out into the world once we'd graduated. Um, mm. And Rocketbox was formed. And they did a small tour around the UK um, of a play called Many Moons by Alice Birch. Um, which is an incredible play. I recommend it to anyone who's listening. Um, so they did that tour for a little bit and then they did the Soundbite series, which is what I wrote Headspace for during COVID. Um, and then they're working on a couple of shows um, as well as Gentle Things at the moment, but I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about that. Um, but no, they're brilliant. Um, they have a website. Um, just Google Rocketbox. Um, you'll find them on Instagram and all socials. They're a lovely bunch of people. So if anyone ever has any questions or anything or wants to work with them, just get in touch. Yeah. Yes, they've got a lovely website. And it looks great. I've, I liked what they said about themselves. Mm. I've got, had a lot of kind of, yeah, a lot of spirit, a lot of integrity. Yeah, definitely. And also interesting that they, they went into radio during mm. COVID. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that seems to be something that they're going to carry on with, not just an adjustment yeah. to that period, but something that's productive yeah. for them in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think... Um, it, it was a really new way of working, especially for me, because I only ever wrote for stage plays. Um, I'd never written a radio play until COVID happened. Um, and at first it just felt like an alternative. But then I started to realise, like, there are so many different directions you can go in. And once you take away the site, what, sens what sensory things can you put into a play? Um, and I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you, so are you kind of fired up about writing more radio I think I am, you know. Yeah, so um, Gentle Things, which um, we're playing soon, will be turned into a live show, so a theatre show later on in the year. Um, but I still think I'm going to continue down the radio play route, definitely. It, also, I think it's, it'll be hard to shake that format now. Like, now I'm rewriting the show as a live show. It's hard to think about the live elements again. So, um, yeah, I think I'll continue to jump between the two. Well, there's lots of opportunities for mm. uh, for radio still. I think you know we still, you know, live in a country with mm. the BBC that produces a new radio play every day. You know, there's mm. lots of opportunities for you know, for mm. new writers. I think emerging writers. So, mm. yeah. But um, tell us about about gentle things mm. then, and and I mean it's. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm again. I'm not going to tell you about your play. You can tell. You can tell. <laughs> I would really love it if you did. Um, 
So Gentle Things is based off of the Greek myth of Cassandra, um, who was a uh, prophetess during the Trojan War, um, who was uh, sexually assaulted in some texts by the god Apollo. Um, And in some texts, she tried to resist this, and uh, he gave her the gift, in quotation marks, of prophecy and the curse of no one ever believing her. Um, Mm. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, And... Um, we started thinking about how it would feel for her to be um, to become kind of this in-between thing of she's no longer a virgin priestess, prophetess, but she can never be a bride um, in the human manner rather than just being with a god. Um, how she would feel in her body after being assaulted in such a manner and how she would feel in her head of being kind of tied to this world physically, but knowing everything that will ever happen, ever. Mm-hmm. Um and no one ever believing her on any of that and how absolutely lonely that must be. Um, so there's a current uh, trend of, um, which I'm so backing, of feminist retellings of Greek myth. So like Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, they're lovely. I'm obsessed with reading them. Um, but I hadn't read anything specifically about Cassandra um, and I just thought we may as well have a go at it. And um, yeah, I just think she deserves more than just being framed in the violence that happened towards her. Um, So have you always been interested in Greek myth? Yeah, so I wasn't always interested. I did, um, I think I chose classics at A-level on an absolute whim because I'd already chosen English Lit and Drama and I was like, what else is there to choose? Mm. Um, So I went for classics and it was very interesting because in classics we were studying Greek plays and then in drama we would also looking at greek plays so it was it just kind of went in that direction um but i started to read um the odyssey like outside of my class Mm. um and then i read song of achilles by madeline miller at the beginning of university which is one of the retellings um and i just love like the chronology of everything how you can pick up one play and it'll reference a character from a different Mm. play or like a book and it's about someone mentioned ages ago you know um i just like how it's this massive tapestry and it's really cool, yeah. And Cassandra, how did you did you have you did you say how you actually came across her? Mm. Yeah. Um she was very briefly mentioned in the uh I think in the Iliad, um, and also um in I think it's just called Agamemnon. Yeah, the play where Agamemnon comes home and he brings Cassandra with her with him. Um and she she was never really given a voice in the Iliad. She was only ever really mentioned in passing. And I remember re- like just plowing on in class and thinking, hang on, no, I want to know more about her. And then there's a scene in uh, Agamemnon where she does get to speak, but all she really says is just she prophesizes and the chorus kind of react to her as though she's this strange, terrifying being. Um, and I just thought it'd be nice to humanise her and get into her head and look into mm. like what her family's like and how she grew up and everything. Um, yeah, and be inspired by like the women in my life who have gone through similar things. Yeah, the gods had a... They did some exquisitely torturous things. Yeah. Giving someone the gift of prophecy and then... The curse mm. of no one believing them. That is just, you know. Yeah, it's it's not it's, only is it abuse, it's it's psychological it's as well. Awful, yeah, isn't it? Just it's that terrible. thought is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else in terms of approaching? I mean, there are so many ways you can tell that story. Mm. And we're going to be hearing in a minute how you tell the story in the sound, along with mm. the sound design, which, by the way, I, I was saying to you, I, th- I think is great, actually. Mm. Um, did you, how did you, 
to approach it? Did you just decide to tell the story chronologically? Or? Mm. Um, I don't... So it kind of... Um, this sounds really obnoxious, but it kind of wrote itself when I first started writing it. Um, I spent ages trying to figure out what her voice sounded like. And I think I, I've written one woman shows in the past where like, I want them to be funny. I want the character to be funny because if it's just one actor, you have to keep the audience along with you for the ride. But that felt superficial and false for mm. her. Um, so instead of making her funny, I wanted to make her interesting and internal and like like constantly looking internally and speaking truth rather than just like cracking jokes every five seconds. Um, so once I got her voice down, it kind of happened from there. Um, but because of her ability to tell the future, essentially, the play turned out to be... Um, it kind of occurs in a weird time liminal space um, where there's references to the future, references to the past, references to things that we know, things mm. that she would know. Um, so it is a told in chronological order, but she does jump around in the play quite a lot, um, hopefully to reflect the way that her brain's like working. Um, yeah. And how much were you involved in the casting of it, in the in mm. the kind of production? Um, so I wasn't involved directly in casting, um, but me and Misha, um, who's part of Rocketbox, um, had a conversation when this idea first got going and we were talking about um, just casting people and we were saying how if it's a Greek story, we want a Greek actor. So Amalia um, is based in London, but she's from Greek she's from greek she's from greece originally um and so she and misha got in touch with each other and it was just perfect so yeah i'm really really happy that we've gone down that route um yeah and amalia has been so helpful with um there's uh bits of greek language in the play as well and she was so helpful with translation um because we as we all know google translate isn't trustworthy at all so she was really brilliant to work with um on making this as accurate and like meaningful as possible yeah uh, well great and for, and thank you so much for uh for the answer to rocket box for allowing us to broadcast this. thank you for playing it and uh yeah finally mm -hmm. again have you have what have you got up your sleeve in terms of writing anything that you couldn't tell us about mm. um so there's a stage version of this there's a stage version of this which is currently in its very very early draft stages and we're uh on the hunt for funding um so we're currently doing that at the moment um and i'm working on something on the side which uh, i wanted to go down the route of verbatim um a verbatim play but uh i haven't touched verbatim since i was like at gcse um so that's a really lovely process of like relearning um how to write that specific kind of play um but yeah, I don't ever really want to speak about it before I've got it all down in writing because whatever I say now will be completely different to it when it actually comes out. Um, but yeah. And it's a weird thing, isn't it, when you, you're writing something and you talk about it, it suddenly, for me, it kind of deflates it slightly. Yeah, I agree. You, you need to hang on to it. I yeah, think. definitely. Yeah, yeah. I also think I, I make myself cringe a little bit if yeah. I'm talking about an idea that I haven't fully recognised no. yet and I'm like, oh, just forget everything yeah, I've said. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't talk about it. Okay. Remember to write it. And, you know, if you want to do anything else for radio and you want mm. to try it out here, you know, open invitation to Excellent. To do Thank that. you so much. Uh, we do uh, quite a lot of that. And mm. we, it's part of our role here. Mm. So thanks ever so much, Rach, for coming in, talking to us. And, uh, yeah, we're going to hear Callum on the desk is going to be putting on Gentle Things. So, yeah, Gentle Things by Rach Horner and produced by Rocketbox Theatre Company.
I was nine when my parents realized that me and my brother had a calling. Mom drank a large cup of wine that evening and checked on us as we slept, trying not to trip over and wake us. She found us asleep next to each other on our shared bed. Around us were nine snakes. She said that two of the snakes licked her ears before she managed to pry them off of us with a stick. I woke up just in time to see the last one being carried away, its tail looping endlessly. No interest in harming anyone. Dad said that the snakes had been sent by one of the gods as a sign, told me and Helenus that we had been chosen to be sent to the temple. Mom argued with him. She was pregnant with another one of my countless siblings, and Dad thought that a woman with a child experienced the emotions of two humans. She'd sit with me and Helenus in front of a mirror and call us two halves of a pomegranate. She liked telling us how he was born ten minutes before me. And then she'd hold both of our hands and then she'd cry. Dad said that she was being unreasonable. Being chosen by the gods was an honor. Isn't that right, Cass? I said yes. When Mom cried again, he rolled his eyes and I copied him. I didn't want him to think I was hysterical as well. I knew what priests looked like. I'd seen them at a distance from Dad's shoulders, watched the way the long robe swept the steps behind them, white mixing with dust. I saw them standing outside my mum's room when my little brother Paris was born, saw them leaning, pressing ears against the door, waiting for his first ever cry from his little baby lungs. The women inside yelled with him, shrill and undulating, while mum was asleep, baby on her chest, Helenus and I moved to the temple by the coast. I brought with me exactly three dresses and I hung them at the end of my bed. Helenus brought with him a knife that used to belong to Dad. We shared a room underneath the temple. It had no windows, but I didn't mind. It felt like a holiday. There were rats. The atrium was huge, a large square courtyard which looked massive when we were kids. We would race. I was faster than Helenus, but if he lost, he would go all sullen and stop talking to me. I'd let him win. When we were old enough, when I had stopped crying, the priests decided we should earn our keep. Without mum, I cried for months. Mum taught me a prayer and I said it over and over. Helenus had teaching from the priests and I was told to go to the women's quarter. I had to wake earlier than he did. I'd leave a notice at dawn and not come back until sunset. The women showed me how to sweep. They talked about how little I was, tangling their fingers into my hair. They said I was pretty, which I was used to hearing at that age. They asked me about my mum, who she was, where I was from. They laughed when I told them, patted my hair again, asked me, what was I doing here? 
When mom visited, I told her that I had made lots of friends, that I was having a great time and that I didn't miss my old life at all. She kissed Helenus on the cheek. Then she cried so hard that she had to lie down on the courtyard floor. When she left, the women made fun of her. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. I wanted the crown to swallow me. He never told me, but I know Helena struggled with his lessons. Back in our room, he would sharpen his knife in a bowl of water, and I'd use the water afterwards to scrub the dirt from under my fingernails. I'd pretend to be asleep while he sat on his bed, chanting quietly, moving his hands slightly as if he was rehearsing a dance. He'd made small noises of disappointment. Later, when I was washing clothes, I repeated the words back to myself. The water started to boil, bubbling onto the floor. I burned my feet. For nine months, every year, God came to stay. I'd never seen him. The priests called him the Quiet Lodger, as though he sleeps in a bed and pays his board. When he arrived, we would throw a festival. There's one every month, with its own processions, songs and offerings. There's one for fertility, where we sculpted genitals from clay, and for marriage, where we gifted our childhood toys to shrines. We wove baskets and carried them in our heads, picked leaves and forged crowns, carved faces into sticks with knives and danced until our feet hurt. I took part in these when I was a little girl, and I remember mom showing me the steps, the knots, the rules. At the temple, I would watch the festival from behind the pillars, through the cracks of the door. I was able to walk through it sometimes, to deliver a plate to a guest or refill a wine. I would see Helenus standing with the priests, miming along with their words when they stretched their arms wide and shouted their praises. Once, when I was 11, I was told to stand outside of the temple with an offering. I was told to keep it calm. I laughed at first, stupidly wondering how I would keep a ball of fruit calm. Stroke it? Sing to it? The offering was a baby goat. Its hair was softest between its eyes and its legs were skinny, shaking. Helenus came to take it off of me, leading the oblivious creature to the altar. After he cut its throat, he wiped its own blood onto his forehead in a sticky, dark streak. When Helenus was a toddler, he found a dead rabbit by her home, and he buried it by the sea. Mum visited again, her eyes wet and red. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I told her that me and Helenus were getting on well, he's really busy, that's why he's not here to say hello, and that I was really good at looking after animals. Then, there were still nine months to go. I was on high alert during these months. Every creak in the night, every candle snuffed out by the wind, was proof of God walking around the temple, going in and out of the rooms, uninvited. I changed my clothes in the dark, just in case. I wasn't the only one. Some women arrived at work with their dresses on back to front, which we turned into a big all-knowing joke. I like that. We felt like a team. And the four months he was gone, 
we prepared for him to come back. Again. Myself and the women all sang together while we washed linens. I had my first string of wine with them. And one of the women, Dina, gave me water when I stood up too fast and the world started spinning. I got to know their faces, their names, where they came from. Face flashed from alcohol. I recited a spell and made the water bumble over my hands and onto the floor. They clapped. They were my friends. On our 15th birthday, when God was gone, Helenus told me that I was allowed to join his lessons for the day. I watched the way he sat with the men, shoulders pushed back. People knew we were twins, but they rarely saw us together, so we humoured the way the priests compared us, making us stand with our backs to each other to see who was taller. I know Helena stood on his tiptoes. I didn't say anything. When we were little, we'd sit in front of a mirror and point out all the things that were the same. Identical faces, moles, eyelashes, fingernails. Even our toes were the same size. Then my hair became longer than his, his hands got bigger, my hips got wider. We stopped looking in the mirror. He didn't like the way we became different together. At first, I thought I was there to clean up after them. Reading the insides of animals can get messy. But when I picked up a cloth, it was taken from me. When I fetched water, it was passed to another girl to carry. I was told to come back the next day and then the day after that. I was there to learn. Someone must have told. We started with gentler things. The call of birds, the bones of a goat, how to throw runes and mix herbs. Helenus whispered the answers to me at first, but I learned quickly. Then we worked on throwing bones onto a fire, how to reach in and read them, how to ignore the white hot flames on your forearms. I could withstand it longer than Helenus. After we practiced, the women of the temple would sweep around my feet. At first, I moved out of the way, but the priest stood like an unmoving obstacle, not acknowledging them. I copied. The priest told me that it was a shame about my sex. If I were a man, I'd have my brother's job. I tried not to think about cleaning, about dipping my hands in cold water and drying them in a cool breeze. I woke up in the night and saw Helena crouching on the floor. One morning, Dina woke up screaming. He was hitting himself in the head over and over and over. When the women found her, she was covered in snakes. The priests counted nine of them. I reached out to him. He slapped my hand away. Four months had passed, and God had come back. Incense is lit in every room. Then fruit is picked, washed and cut. The priests take in turns to approach the altar, bless it in their own way, silent and serious. After, the public are allowed to get close. The doors to the temple are opened and people from outside visit, clutching at the baskets and bags, eyes giddy, palms sweating. This time though, I didn't have to take any bags or pour anyone's wine. Helenus had asked the priests that I stand next to him that evening and keep an eye on the fire. I had convinced myself that he hated me. Then we waited for the sun to set, the air thick with something, nerves, dust. I scanned the faces in the crowd. Some people I recognized. I saw an old man from a town nearby. 
he was reclining on a wooden bench, holding two cups of wine and taking alternative sips. He's here every year. There was a group of official-looking men, wearing embroidered robes, shoulders relaxed and mouths loose, but eyes darting around the room as though something was watching us all from behind the marble columns. At the entrance, holding their ground as best they could, against the jostling around them stood the women of the temple. They held trays of grapes and cups, smiling brightly. I watched as someone stumbled into Dina, pouring wine down her front and grabbing her breasts simultaneously, then lagging away. My cheeks burned hot, suddenly embarrassed and guilty all at once. Traitor. I knew how this evening was supposed to go. Helenus had made me repeat the steps back to him. One, the music begins. Young boys grasp the lyres with white knuckles and the chatter dies down. Two, the priests light a large fire. The smoke swirls into the air, settling above my head like a rolling mist. Three, acknowledgements. People are thanked for coming one by one. Offerings of fruit and wine are deposited in the middle of the room. Some are expensive, big declarations of the love for the pantheon. Others are tiny, a shining coin, a lock of hair. Four, the sacrifice is brought in. The calf is stubborn. It digs its hooves into the marble floor. I wince at the scratches. Helenus pull at its rope, dragging it into the center. The crowd parts around him, humming in admiration. My brother is admired. Five. I step towards the fire. The crowd's humming changes. They're confused. Six. Helenus looks like he's carved from stone. He doesn't look at me. And that's okay. We haven't spoken properly in months, and I decided that later this evening we'll joke about this. Later, we'll chase each other around the courtyard like we used to. Seven. Helenus slits the calf's neck in one swift, smooth action. Eight. I don't think I'll ever forget the sound it makes when it dies. He dips two fingers into the animal's blood and wipes it down my forehead. This is new. We didn't talk about this. The priests nod at each other. They know something I don't. Then the calf is cooked. I lean over the fire. The bones are showing already. Knee joined, fibula. Scapula, count its ribs. Thirteen. The smoke makes my head feel like it's about to fly off my shoulders. I try not to think about its first steps, or the way its mother licked his face clean after birth. My forehead feels warm, the blood drying and flaking into my eyes. I feel sick from the fumes. I turn away, look at Helenus. I want to ask him, why am I here? Why am I not with the women in the back? Why did he wipe the blood on my face? I want to wash myself and start today all over again. I looked around and everyone had stopped moving. At first, I thought this was some part of the ritual that I have forgotten. Then I thought maybe everyone was playing a trick on me. It had happened before. The woman would hide from me behind linens, jumping out at the last second. The thing that gave it away was the smoke. It was frozen in air. 
mid-care. Ελέησέ με και προστάτεψέ με. Ελέησέ με και προστάτεψέ με. I'd heard the stories. They pop up when someone is about to die, or someone has lied, or being born with a face so attractive that the gods just can't help themselves. This usually results in a baby, or a divorce, or a war, or all three. Or they turn up when someone has been given to them. Sometimes, though, they turn people into stars or leaders of great cities, employed by the gods to follow them all their lives. The blood makes my face itch. I think about Helena's silence, the look on his face when I could do something that he couldn't, how he seemed so sad and lonely, the slump in his shoulders in the dark. I suddenly realize why I'm here. I've been given to him. Apollon looks like a young man. He's a little taller than me. His hair is curly. He's dressed plainly like he's woken up on a boring day. Like he's just nipping out to see a friend. The embroidered robes of the people in the crowd make them look overdressed. A golden light ripples around his body, betraying his god status. He speaks. I want to tell him that a mistake has been made. I am not an offering. I am not really meant to be here at all. I should be behind the scenes, arms linked with my friends whispering far away. He tells me that he watched me grow up. I look to Helenus again, help me. Tell him that he's wrong. He's never been told that he's wrong before. The muscles in my neck have seized up. I can feel a hand on my knee, on my waist, on my shoulder, my lower back. My dress feels flimsy. I wish I was wearing more layers. He tells me that he has a gift for me. What does a god ever want from a woman? He gently touches my cheek. Every atom in my body explodes. I see two small children looking in a mirror, comparing their faces. I see churches, believers, protests, lovers, trees. Pateres na kratane da moratus. Shining metal buildings. Creased hands washing blood from a cloth. Glowing screams in a room. The closing of curtains when seeing a soldier. Taxis yemates pedia. I feel the future kicking in my stomach. Ponos tis The sadness of my baby's first heartbreak. The realization that I won't be alive to see it. The sting of being hit in the face. The coolness of water at the coast of an unknown country. The heat from piles of books being burned. The scratchy fabric of an unloved dress. The pinching of fat between thumb and finger. Couple arguing over the time they don't spend together. And as Purgiti na pefti apotifoliato. A 
is star swallowing itself whole. I see Dina watching me with wide eyes, sneaking away in the night to tell the priest that there is a witch in the temple. Vlepo tapada. I see everything. Dispersed throughout is my mum. I see her room, her bed that I would climb into after a nightmare. She sits on it and looks towards me when I enter the room. She frowns when she sees me, which I don't like. I want her to smile. I try and ask her what's happening and then I see myself through her eyes. She doesn't see her daughter. Instead, she sees Apollon. We moved away, tried to hide under the blanket, tried to kick him. He presses down on her, on me. Get off, get off, get off. The vision skips ahead to the swelling of her stomach, her telling him everything, him not believing her. The horror of seeing snakes curling on top of her children, my little brother Paris screaming in her arms. His face is like a sunbeam. I think I'm going to be sick. The room is still frozen in time. I just want to lay down. There is a hand tugging at the hem of my dress. Stop. Get off. I said no. He recoils like I've slapped him. Grips my face. He pushes his fingers against my lips, opening them and spits directly into my mouth. Dina told me that one minute I was leaning over the fire, the next I was falling backward. She told me that she hasn't seen Apollon, that I must have inhaled too much smoke, which make me dizzy. I tell her that she's going to marry a man who will take her far away from her family. And she leaves bread and water by my bed. So much happens between now and the end of the world and nothing happens at all. Language changes again. There are new words for things I never thought would even exist. I asked to see Helenus. His bed looks like it hasn't been slept in. A priest checks on me. He asks me how I'm doing and I tell him what Apollon looks like. He recoils when I say his name. I tell him that his wife is going to leave him for another. And he calls me hysterical. We'll make buildings and governments and our skirts will be shorter. Women will be able to vote on things like laws and money. Women will be able to marry each other. I get out of bed and lay on the floor. It's so cool against my back. I hope that the chill sets into my bones. Sit up again. Lay back down. I put my hand in my mouth and try to scrape out the metallic taste though I already feel it interlacing with my blood, splicing and melding. I imagine my body has muddy water and I don't like the way my cells are mutating. There's so much music. I've listened to 400 songs already. There's all these different politicians too. I see all their faces. They argue the same way that we do, but about different things. As I lay there, a shadow looms over my closed eyes. Mum licks a finger and rubs at my forehead. My city doesn't exist in 10 years. This planet doesn't exist in 10,000. We're all swallowed up by a cloud. Why didn't you warn me? It seems scary at first, this change, 
People identify it and try to stop it from happening. She tells me I wouldn't have believed her. It all ends. And then, there's nothing for a while. She tells me how no one will ever believe me. How that's part of it. You refuse a gift, and you pay the price. She tells me how everything in her body is telling her that I am a liar. She tells me how she's ignoring it. She cries. I cry with her. It feels so, so good. I see what happens after. The way something grows in the absence of us. I hug her and we breathe together. In her arms, I see her learning how to walk as a child, running towards her mom, chubby hands grabbing at air. I see her mom and her mom's mom. I see all the way back. The thing that grows is something different. Being chosen by the gods is not an honor. We are not something to choose. Something new. Listening to Gentle Things, a production for audio by Rocketbox Theatre. Gentle Things was written by Rach Horner and was performed by Amalia Pascalidi. It was directed by Misha Jones with sound production from Harry Brewer. The music was composed and performed by Oscar Reeve and James Freeman, with additional thanks to Caroline Winterburn, Alice Lloyd Davies, and Ross Hayward. We'll be releasing the full EP of tracks from Gentle Things on our streaming platform soon, and you can listen to our other audio productions at rocketboxtheatre.co.uk. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>